gun Ramos looking like he's got one more good run Sips a little shaky But his heart is still true Oh how that dog loves hunting with me and you Sporting dog adventures run The Sporting Dog Adventures podcast is proudly brought to you by Soggy Acres Retrievers. Remember, everyone deserves a soggy dog. Welcome to Sporting Dog Adventures podcast. Today I have my lovely wife Kate here and we are going to talk about litters of puppies and how they start from birth to seven weeks when they go home. We've done some really cool video series on this in the past on the TV show Sporting Dog Adventures, but I thought it would be a neat topic to cover while we talk about it here on the podcast. So, Kate, thanks for joining me. Yeah, the segment when we had the TV show was called Welcome to the Whelping Box, and we would follow a mother dog from pregnancy all the way to go home day, and it was definitely my favorite thing that we did with the TV show. Um, more so than going on the hunts, more so than the cooking segments, more so than all the other things. I just think it's really, it's really cool. It's really heartwarming. It's really fun seeing, you know, mama before she's going to give birth all the way to the incredible happy faces you see on go home day. So um, it's, it's a very um, difficult and long process, but it's very rewarding at the end. And it is something that we see often and you, I guess I, I dare say you, you, you take it for uh, granted, uh, watching a puppy go from where they're born and they're probably about one pound and they are deaf and they're blind and they're very helpless and you have to very much work with them and make sure that they're they're getting to mom and getting fed to then they go home at seven to eight weeks old and they're 12 to 15 pounds and they bite and they run around and they are little terrors. They are, yeah. The parts, of course, that people don't see, because um, of course uh, our clients, they only see the yellow or brown or black little fluffy ball of love going home on go home day as the weeks leading up to that and the hard work that we put in there, um, particularly when they're really, really young. Um, just constantly checking them for hydration, you know, giving their little backs of their necks a little pinch to make sure that they're hydrated and um, either tube feeding them if they really need a boost. Um, otherwise, I and you, we've both spent countless hours literally sitting or laying in the whelping box and holding um, very weak pups onto mom, you know, for as long as it takes, you know, letting them drink until they fall asleep, basically, and then rotating them with other pups and then rotating them back and, you know, timing it to make sure that the, the less strong ones get enough milk and enough time on mom. Um, so yeah, there's all of those long nights and hours that lead up to um, before go-home day. And then, of course, you do all the work with the vet, with all the vetting. There's multiple vet appointments that are involved before anyone takes a puppy home from, you know, the dew claw removal to first shots and everything like that. Um, so yeah, there's quite a bit of work that goes into it when they're really, really little long before they go home, you know, to their loving families. So I think what we'll do is we'll break it down by almost like stages in a litter. You've got the stage from just born to two weeks old, and that is the stage where they don't have their eyes open and they're deaf. Uh, it is a stage that is 
a lot of work in the sense that you have to constantly check the puppies because if you lose puppies, many times it is where the mother lays in them and you can't help that. The mom is tired. She, she lays down. The puppy might be stuck under her. That's why we design whelping boxes the way we do. A whelping box has a rail around it that is actually called a pig rail because it's used for pig farming. And it keeps the mom so that she can't lay against the outside wall of the whelping box if there's room there because the puppies will crawl out. Uh, then it is the the next thing that uh, can take puppies is, as you said, dehydration. So it is constantly pinching their back of their neck and making sure that it drops fast because that shows they're hydrated. And these are the times where you're sitting out in the whelping box to make sure they have are fed. It always falls on me because this is what I do and you have a, 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 a day job. And that is the walk down the driveway to make sure everyone is getting fed every night. And I don't think people realize it's like every two to three hours that you have to get up. And it's not as bad of a walk to go from our house to the kennel, which is about a quarter mile. But in winter, it is brutal. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. And if you have a really touchy litter, um, it's every hour and a half. You know, you literally set your phone and you trot out there and you sit with them and you make sure they're getting their milk and whatever and it feels like just about the time that they're falling asleep because they've had enough and you've walked back up here and you've almost hauled back to sleep your alarm goes off again and i do have a cot i actually will sleep out there if i have to but at the same time if there's more than one litter it is so damn noisy in there that it's not like you're going to sleep at all anyway no puppies make a shocking amount of noise uh, if anybody's watched any of our, um, like the authentic puppy videos that you do with your camera um, right here on site, the unedited ones, you get something of a feeling of how noisy they are. But um, obviously most times we have litters that are at different ages. You have the very, very little guys and they're very young, all the way up to the ones that are just about to go home. And the noise, especially as they get older, oh my gosh, it's it's deafening in there. Um, so yeah, it's not an environment a, a person really wants to sleep in, but you have when you've had to, that's for sure. So now we'll go into the next stage, which is what I think is like the golden age of a litter. And that is from two weeks to about four weeks because at this point, the puppies are generally gonna all be strong. You don't lose many after they're two weeks old unless you have something cataclysmic happen. Uh, the puppies are old enough, they can get away from mom if she's laying down, they're strong, they're up, they're moving, they're starting to walk, they're cute, their eyes are open. They can hear things, and now is when mom is just taking care of everything in the in, in the litter box. And I mean everything. Never let a mother dog lick your face. That's <laughs> all I'm going to say because they clean up everything. Everything. But, that's why you like this stage best because, yeah, mom cleans the litter, the, the not the litter box, the uh, whelping box for you. Um, they That's literally what they do. They go around and they lick the whelping box clean and then they also lick the puppies clean. They, they keep them clean. They, you don't need to give the puppies a bath. In fact, that'd probably be very bad for them. Mom keeps them clean. She keeps them fed. She keeps them clean. Um, yes, their eyes are open. They're tottering around. They're super cute. Um, and it's just this perfect little happy world and we just make sure everything goes according to plan. Um, and your cleaning responsibilities um, go down, that's for sure. I mean, we still obviously clean, you know, with our, our solutions, but um, it's nothing like the next stage, which is not so much fun in the cleaning department. Yeah, so once we get to about three weeks is when I pull the whelping ring out, which is again has that rail called the pig rail. And then the puppies are just on a kennel deck type floor, a kennel deck floor 
<coughs> I've actually designed my whelping boxes so that I have floors that fit. They're, they're two by four pieces, two foot by four foot pieces, and they fit together. The whelping ring is about is 48 inches uh, around um, and 48 by 48 in a square. And you pull the floors out and you have to constantly be bleaching and pine sawing and cleaning, but it makes it easier because it's almost modular. We pull the whelping ring out and now it is really easy, but now is when the work is going to start, when you're going from that four weeks to seven weeks. Yeah, it's um, a couple of different things happen. We start to wean them from mom. We start to offer them kibble. Uh, because once the puppies are ready to go home, they are obviously fully transitioned to the kibble for their you know, new um, forever homes. So obviously when you're switching from milk to kibble, you're going to have some different things that come up digestively. So um, that's messy. And then mom gets to the stage where she goes, um, yep, this is someone else's turn to clean up. Now I've done my part. I've cleaned up the bits and pieces, the parts of this process that I'm responsible for cleaning up. And this is where that journey for me ends. Best point to explain it, mom can't eat 10 pounds of poop. She can't eat that much, no. And it's not like, um, not to be overly graphic in nature, but the, the type of poo that you're talking about with a teeny tiny puppy that's like the size of a baking potato um, who's only eating milk is nothing even vaguely similar to the kind of mess you're dealing with that comes out of a five-week-old puppy or a six-week-old puppy. It's, it's not comparable, and mom goes, nope, that's where I draw the line. To give people an idea, the week they go home, they're probably 12 to 15 pounds, and they're probably eating several cups of food per day, mm-hmm. each puppy. And if you have 10 to 12 puppies, that's a lot of food. That food does come back out. So you're dealing with that's quite a, a bit that's a of lot stuff. Of that's a lot of puppy poo. So mom, you know, mom's not going to consume all of that. And yeah, we wouldn't even expect her to. So that's where Jeff's job starts to get really, really bad with the cleaning. Um, so we uh, have our own kind of solution that we use. It's a bleach pine sole water mix in a certain uh, ratio. And he uses that to clean the kennels basically just nonstop. He's out there all day on and off cleaning those kennels. So You also have your parasite control. Uh, what people don't realize is that all puppies are treated for parasites. You have a worming protocol that you treat them at three, uh, I do, three weeks uh, old, five weeks old, and then seven weeks old before they go home. We also treat them uh, depending on how their stools look for other parasites, just to make sure that you are knocking everything out before they go to their new homes. But puppies actually get worms, they get giardia, they get coccidia, they get different stuff from the mom. It actually lives in the mom's system. And then dogs will have these parasites living in their system, and then when they're under duress or stress, they have what's called a flare, which that flare means that it then presents and the puppies get it through the milk. So the stress or the duress from for the mother is 10 puppies sucking the life out of her, and then the parasite presents and goes into the puppies. So that's how they actually get parasites, and that's why it is important to treat them. Yeah, people always ask us, they're like, we don't understand, how does a puppy get worms? They're not by dirt. Well, one, it has nothing to do with the dirt, and it's not those kind of worms, but... Um, they don't understand well they're on all hard surfaces they're on concrete how are they getting a parasite you know and our point is it's not something that's being brought in it's it's within mom you know it's being passed 
to the pups basically through the milk. So that's why we have the protocols that we have and that's why we treat them for that. So. And as puppies get older, puppies do pick this stuff up from other animals. Animals in the wild aren't treated. So the minute that your puppy goes and drinks out of a puddle or drinks out of a pond or a river or eats poop from a rabbit or a goose, they're going to have these parasites presented to them. They will then be in their body. When you treat them, you don't necessarily knock that parasite out, but you knock it down to the point where it's not active. And again, that's why you see these see older dogs that will get sick. It's because they're put under stress, whether they went on a trip or they, they, they had a, uh, a stressor in the house. That's why you can see these things happen. Or it was they just drank out of a puddle and they introduced something they haven't had before. Mm -hmm. And it's easy enough to treat. It's just important to treat. So we, I guess you could say pre-treat, you know, obviously as breeders, we're making sure we don't want to have a whole litter of pups that are ill with anything. We certainly don't want to send anyone home with a puppy that has an active problem at the time. Um, so in our case, it's more um, like preventative. Um, but, you know, older pups, obviously, like you said, they can get it from eating something like goose poo, which is always a dog favorite. Anytime they see goose poo, it's like, oh, that's like candy and they're going to eat it. So if they do get sick from it, it is pretty easy to treat. You just go to your vet, they'll give you what you need, and you know you can pretty much knock it right out. And most people have, their dogs are being treated because when you are treating for your, your heartworms, the tab that you give also treats roundworms, hookworms, all those type of worms. So you're, you're basically treating through that anyway, but it's just, it's, it's important to try to explain this to stuff to people so that you understand how they get it and, and why it's important to keep them on these worming protocols that your vet has. Mm -hmm. um, and we make sure that when uh, we send puppies home that we actually have that in the puppy paperwork packet and that we review that with people so that they understand what the dog has already been treated for. Um, but also to, you know, uh, what they need to do in terms of going forward, like you said, the, the wormer product, the heart guard and stuff like that, and then to be mindful if they see anything that would be symptomatic of the dog being actually sick and when they should, you know, take the dog to the vet or actually be alarmed, so. So I hope you guys enjoyed this part of the show. Next up, our training tip is going to be a question from one of our listeners about getting his dog to finish retrieves. So if you ever want to send us a question that you could hear here on the podcast, you can either watch our Facebook page, Sporting Dog Adventures on Facebook, where we put up a post asking for questions, or email me, sportingdogtv at gmail.com. And if it's a question I think I can answer on the air, we'll actually use it for the show. So stay tuned for that coming up. This part of the podcast is brought to you proudly by Mech Outdoors. On today's training tip, we're going to talk about teaching your dog to retrieve. And this was a question from one of our listeners on our Facebook page. The question was, how do you manage a dog's distractions during a retrieve? Example given, eating grass and stopping the retrieve partway. And how do you stop the dog from shaking and playing keep away with the bumper that has a string attached? So this is a two-part question, but it's got one answer, which comes down to teaching the dog force fetch or mouth control. This is something that we do with the dog before we take them out to the field, before we work on retrieving per se with the dog as a teaching tool, because you have to realize when you have a dog that is bred to hunt, that means that it has retrieving desire, it has prey drive, <clears throat> what you need to do is teach them that they hunt for you. And part of that is teaching them mouth control. Force fetch is a process that takes four to six weeks. 
It is working with the dog to teach them that they have to fetch when you tell them fetch of whatever item and that they hold it by giving them the hold command and bring it to you and sit at heel to finish the retrieve so that they are completely under control and giving you what they are holding. You can look at it as a conservation of game when out hunting. If a dog drops a winged pheasant and 50 birds had just run through the area and then that winged pheasant takes off and runs away, the dog's not going to know which dog was that winged pheasant as it tries to find it. If a dog drops a duck out in the water a few feet from shore and the duck dives down, you're not going to retrieve that duck more than likely and you've lost that duck. So think of it in that manner that you're not teaching the dog to hunt because again, they have to be bred for that. If they don't want to go do it they're not going to because just because a dog is a hunting breed doesn't mean that they're all going to have the proper drives but you're teaching them control if they have that drive so that they're going to work for you so work with your dog on your force fetch along with your collar conditioning and your obedience beforehand and then take them out and start getting them experience in the field hope that helps that's this week's training tip now to our hunting tip This portion of the podcast is proudly brought to you by Boucher Automotive in Janesville, Wisconsin. On this week's hunting tip, I wanted to focus on the dog. I had a client ask me about hunting with his dog out of a boat and was concerned that the birds would see him and wanted the dog to be behind the boat blind with the hunters. My point to him was this was a young dog and the dog really needed to see the birds fall because the dog was not trained for blind retrieves. I asked him if he had a flat area up on the bow of his boat. He said yes. I told him to either make a hole in his blind so the dog could peer out or have that area of the blind removed and put a dog blind up there so that the dog can successfully watch birds fall and then go out and do the retrieve. I also explained to him that if you're working out of a layout blind, you can have a blind for the dog to be in uh, in the field or have the dog lay next to you. You just want to make sure that they're not going to break and run out in front of people that are shooting. Or if you have a duck blind, you can do the same. You can have an area where the dog can view the uh, potential area where the decoys are and the birds are going to fall. Or you can put a uh, blind with uh, telescoping legs that will keep it out of the water next to the duck blind so the dog has an area to watch. Again, work with the dog before the season so that you can get them under control and keep them under control, and you are going to see your dog perform well in the field this fall. That's it for this week's hunting tip. Thank you so much for listening to the show. God bless. Sporting dog adventures, run, boy, run. Everything you need is here under the sun.